Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Aaron Taylor. Aaron has recently started Finthropology, a new consulting company. And so today we're going to be talking about fintech. She's also a research lead at the European Women's Payment Network, an associate at Western Sydney University, and previously owned another consulting company by the name of Canela Consulting and was a research consultant at Holland Fintech. So aside from talking about fintech, we'll also be talking a little bit about entrepreneurship and the reason of pivoting from one consulting company to the next to really focus on fintech. And briefly, we'll probably touch on just you know sort of this mix of employment opportunities, uh, which is sort of similar to what I do, which is I have a day job and I kind of consult on the side and I have these podcasts. So we're going to just briefly touch on how we kind of bring all those together. So Aaron, thanks for joining me today. Um, Would you mind starting as I do with everybody about telling us how you came into anthropology to begin? Sure. And uh, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks. Uh, So how did I come into anthropology? That is an amazing question. Uh, Basically, um, I was in a situation where I couldn't decide what I wanted to do because I was interested in everything. And I thought, no, 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 I've got to focus. I've got to focus. So I'll go and study psychology, which I did and I liked it. And I thought of doing maybe neuropsych or something like that. And then I took a class in medical anthropology because I thought, oh, that will be totally helpful for the psychology. It'll, it'll just support it so much. And within, I think, about two weeks of classes, I just decided, okay, I'm going to be an anthropologist. I was completely sold by the idea of going out to do field work and also by the kinds of insights that anthropologists have. I remember one of the first articles we read was about medical students just starting at university and how they learnt to see the body differently um, within the first few weeks of their course. So they went from just walking down the street like everyone else seeing ordinary people to seeing people as a collection of moving parts and bones and muscles. It's like this medical vision that they had and that insight that you can study how people see the world in different ways completely got me hooked. Yeah, yeah, great. And, you know, the uh, comment about not sure what you want to do, I, I hear it often. It's, it's funny how so many of us have such broad interests. But um, you said in there that you were, you know, that, that field work got you hooked. When you say that, were you thinking field work sort of like, you know, some sort of far off place or just the idea of being really kind of in context? 
I think it was really just the idea of in context because the benefit of my early undergraduate education is they really showed us a wide range of ways to do anthropology. So one of the books that really blew my mind was the old classic American Kinship, which completely takes apart how kinship is done in the United States in a way that I didn't realise was possible. I didn't realise that we're all carrying all these beliefs that, um, we don't analyse, we don't stop to think about, they're hidden from ourselves and we can't explain to other people what systems we're using in our in our lives. So that made me realise that actually you can do anthropology anywhere and about anything. And when you read that book, did it also help you see anything about your own culture, you know, and, and the kinship patterns of your own? Yeah, I think more than kinship, it helped me think better about class in Australia because I think social class in Australia is actually quite specific. It's different from social class in the United States. It's different from social class in the UK and in other places as well. And um, one of the things I realised that there are just so many subtleties to the practices of class. So, for example, in Australia, there has been a long history of having a working class culture, but a working class culture in Australia really crosses over a lot with a middle class culture. So they're really quite hybrid and have been for a long time. And so that was a great revelation because it made me realise that you cannot make assumptions. Like, you know, we like to talk about, oh, the working class around the world or the middle class, but there is no such thing. You cannot go from one country to another and assume that the class system is going to be the same. So, you know, I'd be curious to know these early interests, you know, obviously they mature, you go through... You come out and at some point, you know, we, many, well, everybody on this podcast decides to go into business. Now you have a a fair amount of business experience at this point, but could you share with us, you know, sort of where you learned about the application of, of anthropology, you know, to, to the business setting and what got you interested in that? Absolutely. I think my probably my early education didn't actually help me too much. Even though we had a pretty broad undergraduate education, there was no focus on business anthropology. And there was actually very little even of organisational anthropology within my degree at that time, which, mind you, was in the 1990s, early 2000s. So it's going back some time now. Um, in my postgraduate education, I suppose I, I started getting exposed to people who, who had taken that route, but not really within Australia. It was more through going to conferences like the American Anthropological Association conferences at first that started exposing me to people who had gone into business. And once I started noticing that, I started paying more attention and thinking about starting my own business. And that was when I discovered the ethnographic praxis in industry community and started going to their conferences. So it was really epic where I cut my teeth, those conferences, talking to people there, connecting to people on LinkedIn, having phone calls with different people. Uh, And it was a long journey to gain that knowledge, but that was really what got me started. And so... Again, there's a number of experiences we could dig into, but if we were to, you know, look at, say, the research consultant position at Holland FinTech, um, you know, as you were coming into that, did you have, you know, was FinTech of particular interest to you? Yes, definitely. 
Uh, by that time, I had very much uh, turned towards finance and fintech as my topics of study. And that was because while I was still an academic doing uh, a postdoctoral research position at the University of Lisbon, I started working on a project with uh, Professor Heather Horst from Western Sydney University on uh, the use of money and mobile money services and mobile phones in Haiti. I had done my PhD research in the Dominican Republic on uh, how people who are very poor invest in their houses and their environment. So I already had an economic anthropology focus, but I had not thought about financial tools at all, paid no attention. But then when we went to do the research in Haiti, um, we started looking more deeply into not just the use of financial technology, such as apps on mobile phones, but also thinking more about what money means to people. What can it do? How does it reinforce social relations, etc.? And at that time, I thought, wow, okay, I can really draw upon my studies in economic anthropology to understand this. But I also suspect that there are a whole lot more disciplines out there who also write about this that I should know about. And so that got me looking into behavioural finance and economics and money history and any other discipline I could find that um, has scholars who do research on money. And from there, what I realised is that finance is changing, not in just in the so-called global south, where these kinds of uh, products like mobile money and microfinance are being disseminated, but around the world we're seeing this big shift in how financial services are offered and that is changing the possibilities of what people can do with financial tools. So I got really interested in those big questions about financial change around the world. So by the time I uh, started working with Holland Fintech, I was already enveloped in that kind of thinking for a long time. But I had not really worked in the industry. I'd worked as an academic thinking through these issues. So working with Holland Fintech gave me a uh, sort of a way to start to observe more closely, especially how the industry operates. Because up to that point, I was very consumer focused, did research with people using products didn't have much exposure to the industry. Through my work with Holland Fintech, I was able to uh, observe, you know, in their natural context, the, the bankers and the fintech CEOs and whoever else working in fintech, get a sense of how the industry worked. Got it. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting, that last comment there, because, uh, you know, you may have seen, <clears throat> I know it's around the internet quite a lot right now in our circles. But so Jillian Tett's new book where she's talking about the desire to to kind of, you know, get closer to CEOs leading up to the 2008-2009 crash. And, you know, she talks in there about how it was kind of challenging both in, in, the, in the sort of London and New York scene, uh, at least in the beginning. And so you just said that, you know, you were sort of cutting your teeth by being around sort of these players. So how much access were you getting at that time? And, you know, was that, um, did you find you were having a kind of a, a difficult time getting access like she describes, or was it just different given the, the consulting model? It was a pretty different scenario. So most of my contact would have been through meetings and events that were pre-organized. So for me personally, I didn't have to do anything to make those encounters happen because they were happening for Holland Fintech's events. So I was fortunate enough to be able to just 
go along, play my part, observe the room uh, and see how people interacted with each other. And in some ways that's more useful um, than doing interviews where you ask specific questions to a specific person. I was actually able to step back and be the anthropologist just, you know, doing the participant observation and just watch how people interacted with each other and especially watch the conversations that unfolded. And some of the things that mystified, especially these kind of young new fintechs about how they could make their companies successful. So I have a strong memory of one event where we were had like a meeting and a round table to discuss issues facing fintech companies. And uh, it was all uh, Dutch men there, uh, completely, like 100%. And they were trying to brainstorm ideas they could make their companies more successful. And they were asking questions like, well, how can we get consumers to buy our products, you know? And I'm thinking, wow, that's like such a such a limited way of understanding what you have to do to make a sale, right? It's uh, very much uh, you need to think about the consumer's perspective and what they want and uh, want what they need. And I felt like the attitude in the room was, well, if consumers just knew about our products, of course they would buy them because they're fintech and they're awesome. So without really thinking through what actually is the human need they're fulfilling. Yeah. So how tell us about like what gives meaning to somebody when they maybe want to use one of these products. I, you know, somewhere in here, uh, especially a lot of these products in this fintech space are new, right? Or you know, especially those not coming out of like the traditional banking sector. So it seems like there's a trust component that has to go in to this, that has to factor in. And so, you know, is there anything interesting in that space that you could share? Absolutely. Uh, there are so many reasons why people use financial products, and that becomes really visible when you look at people using fintech. Until recently, most of us didn't have the opportunity to use this nice array of financial services. We were very dependent on our banks and banks offer a very narrow range of services and you use them in certain ways. And maybe you have your preferences with how you like write things in your checkbook or how you organize your finances in the house. But still, the services themselves are pretty limited and pretty standardized. The difference with fintech is you have a massive array of services offered by a massive array of providers and many of them are tailored to specific groups or specific needs. So for example, you might have products designed for women or you might have products that are designed specifically for financial management or investment or savings or something else, not a whole suite of services. And so what you get is a situation in which consumers have much more choice in how they combine different financial services to make their finances work for them. You're not limited to just one provider, one thing. Um, and the reasons why people might need or like services differ, differ uh, greatly. So, for example, um, a person may need to use a particular money transfer app because it's literally the only app around. And so it's really just uh, a question of need, a question of availability. Other people, and I think this is really fascinating, might have access to products they actually really love. One of my favorite examples of this is uh, right here in the Netherlands, there's this product called Tiki that you can use to uh, send money to your friends. So let's say we all go out for lunch and I pay the bill and everyone will say, oh, send me a ticky and I'll pay you back. So I'll send out these basically, you know, WhatsApp kind of messages and people can click on it and then immediately pay me back. 
And what I thought was fascinating is that when this first came out, people loved it. They were going crazy over Chicky. They loved sending their Chickies. And I thought this was great because historically money has been thought of, or sorry, not money, but really payments have been thought of as being something called a dissatisfier. The idea is that you only care about your payments when they break. So long as your payments work smoothly, you don't love them, you don't like them, you don't find them fun, they just they just happen. Once they break, you you get annoyed and you hate them. But what Tiggy showed me is that you can also love your payments. And so what to me that shows is we need to change our idea that financial tools are just a means to an end and they're just really boring. Uh, of course, people mostly care about the goals they want to achieve. They want their tools to work for them so they can buy lunch or go on a holiday or whatever. But I think we shouldn't look past the fact that people also can love financial tools. So what do you think was it about this application that they loved? Was it the social aspect of sort of, you know, paying back, you know, uh, you know uh, somebody they sort of care about, if you will, or, or just that, that social engagement, or was it something else? It's probably a combination. I think the social setting really helps. You've just been out to lunch with your friends. You've had a couple of wines. Things become more fun, you know, but that would not be possible unless the app itself gave people something, you know. It could still be an annoyance even if you're in a nice situation. So I think what it was is it's just so easy to use the app. It almost turns it into a little mini game. Um, you just open it, you press a button, you pay. And the fact that it feels so easy to do and you are instantly able to meet your obligations to your friend without having to go through a lot of trouble makes you happy because you've just kind of dodged a bullet in a sense of having to go through the stress of how do I pay and should I transfer or should I give cash or whatever. It just takes all the pain away from the process. And that in itself can also bring joy. And so how about, do you have any other examples like, you know, I, particularly in areas maybe where there's been a lot of stress in the past, so maybe around savings and investment, anything in that space that you've seen really sort of transform the way people look at it? Yeah, um, one of my favourite ones is actually around the use of QR codes and changing shopping practices because now that we're all on multiple devices, there's questions of, okay, if you're shopping online, where do you do it? Do you prefer to do it on your laptop? Do you prefer to do it while you're sitting on your couch with your phone or your iPad or whatever? And the weird thing about internet shopping is that quite a lot of people use a multi-channel experience even just to make one purpose, uh, sorry, purchase. Um, for example, I had a friend who uh, liked to sit on her couch with her phone to find products, but then whenever she wanted to purchase them, she would actually go to her laptop, open it up, find it again, and then buy it because she didn't like fiddling with the phone screen. Now, at some stage, companies started to institute QR codes so that when you went to your computer, you could use your phone to take a photo of the QR code and make the payment that way. So you would finish it on your phone while in front of your laptop. And she loved this. For her, this was like a game changer. The fact that she didn't have to enter all the payments information and she could just use her beloved mobile phone, take that photo and it's done. Uh, she would rave about this. So again, that's an example of people who have uh, a situation in which they're used to it being difficult. It's a pain in the neck to, to complete. They find a simple solution and they're in love with it. So the industry um, is interesting for many reasons, but one of those is certainly that it has the ability to sort of decentralize you know, 
really serve or take sort of power away from what was historically a few large global organizations, um, which you know maybe the user experience of that is is separate from that sort of uh, occurrence, but it does have the p- the potential to really sort of reshape the broader sort of financial system. And so have you seen any, you know, um, any interesting occurrences happening there with like, say, the traditional banking sector sort of losing some of its power or grip on the industry to some of these other apps? And what might that translate into for the broader economy, but also, you know, humans? Yeah, sure. I mean, I haven't seen any recent numbers. I don't know that the banking sector is really, you know, going down fast or anything because of the fintech competition, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they're definitely worried about it enough to start adapting. So a lot of banks have partnered with fintechs to offer things like the Tiki app, for example. That's becoming really commonplace. So having partnerships rather than being in direct competition. Um, I would say that it's not so much uh, a diminishing of market share that is happening with this transformation, but rather there is a growth in the products and services available and the things consumers can do. So it rather, I think, expands the market rather than diminishes it. So there's sort of more market share for potentially everybody. And um, do you see, you mentioned partnerships, do you think they'll, are you seeing them just partner or, or is there like an acquisition streak going on where they're trying to acquire some of these small startups? That's definitely happening as well. You'll see that. I, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but yeah, acquisition is also part of the game. Um, and sometimes that's the goal. You know, sometimes fintechs begin with the idea, look, we'll start small and if we're lucky, we'll get acquired by a bank and uh, cash out. Yeah, that's the uh, plan of many startups. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's also, um, I guess there's the question aside from, you know, aside from blockchain, is there anything happening in the fintech space that's sort of getting us away from the, some of the traditional banking sector in the sense of like transferring money? So even like Zelly, right? Zelly in the, maybe you've come across it, but Zelly in the US is big. A lot of banks have partnered with it good for transferring money, but it's still essentially is transferring through the traditional banking sector. And so you're limited by speed of that sector in the US, which is quite slow, um, you know, multiple days typically, and it still can't transfer out of the US. You know, so aside from developments like blockchain, are you seeing anything pop up that could help um, shift the balance sort of in terms of global transfers to get kind of away from that old slower system? I think most of the advancements happening in transfers at the moment are really happening at a higher level. I mean, in Europe, you have um, the single Europe payments area and there's a move to continue to develop um, the infrastructure and the technology so that payments will be instant across Europe. But that's, I mean, yeah, that cannot be done at the, the level of the individual company. That's really something about the, the infrastructure and the coordination and the cooperation that has to take place. And um, a similar things happening in Australia, uh, also in parts of Africa. So um, I do feel that that kind of innovation is really dependent upon, upon that higher level. Um 
In terms of other kinds of innovations that might make life more interesting for consumers, there is a lot happening at the level of the individual fintech. For me, the most interesting developments are not so much about technology or making payments faster or anything like that. They're more about tapping into human needs and desires. So there are a lot of new financial management apps around the world. And some of those are really savvy in how they try to encourage people to manage their money. There's one in particular called Dreams here in Europe. And what they do is they encourage people to save money, not with a certain dollar or euro value in mind, but rather with a goal in mind. Mm -hmm. So I want to go for a holiday or I want to buy something for my child or, or whatever. And what they do to get people emotionally invested is they'll have this app And where you set your goal, you can put, for example, a photograph of your child and that is in the centre of the screen and the dollar value or euro value shows, but it's much smaller. Mm -hmm. So while they still include that focus on the economic, they're trying to shift away to those more human elements. So um, great example. And obviously, you you can see how anthropology can plug in plug in really well to that. So tell us, you know, that was a kind of just maybe interesting overview on fintech, but let's maybe pivot back to a little bit about like your contribution and, and you know, your new your new startup anthropology and talk about what is it that you're sort of bringing to to some of these, you know, to, to this sector? How do you see anthropology particularly contributing? It's a really good question. And over the years, my opinion has changed a lot. I think when I got into this business, we were very much focused more on methods. So with Canela Consulting, we built the brand around the methods that we used to do the research, to find the knowledge. And that was true of many, many companies at that time. We were all methods focused. But over the last few years, I think that methods have become less relevant and knowledge has become more central. And I think sometimes we forget that what anthropology has to offer is not just, oh, the method of ethnography, which of course is awesome, but also a massively important part of anthropology is our analysis, the ways in which we take things apart, such as American kinship, for example, or how we analyze uh, people in finance like Gillian Tett does so well. And so with the new company, we've pivoted to actually underplay totally the methods we use for research and emphasize the anthropological analysis. Now, that can be many things depending on who you're talking to. What I'm finding in the finance industry is that people do have an understanding of what anthropology is. They very much associate anthropology with people and with culture. And for us, that's a great start. If I can go to someone in finance and say, oh, I'm the founder of Finthropology, and they'll say, oh, Finthropology, what a great name. We need more of that. And even say things like we need more anthropologists because apparently people know what anthropologists are these days, which is fantastic. And so from there you can start to build a conversation about what anthropology actually does. Yes, it's about people constantly emphasising that when you want to understand people, we need to go beyond the sort of more common ideas of, let's say, what customer centricity is and think more about the cultural and the social context in which people live. Being customer-centric is immensely valuable, but often it tends to mean focusing on um, the individual or the individual in aggregate statistic and their relationship 
with the financial product or service through the branding, through the um, user interfaces, uh, and so on and so forth. But an anthropologist would come along and say, well, okay, but then how does this device that they're using to make this transaction fit with all the other financial and products and services they use on a day-to-day basis? How does that portfolio of financial tools work for them? How does it work for their family? Because when people make financial transactions, it's often not a an individual kind of action. They might be purchasing something for their their children. Uh, they might be jointly buying something like a car. Um, they might be sending money to a relative. They might be buying gifts for people. So people's financial behavior never happens, almost never at an individual level. There's always some sort of social meaning. And that is the message that we're trying to get across. Got it. So it's a very interesting point, and I want to come back to that. But I, I want to go back to the start of that answer because you talked about, you know, in the beginning with Canela Consulting, you were really focused in on the methods, and today, you know, so you can and maybe you know to reframe it from my perspective, you almost focused on maybe like what and how, and today it's more on like sort of why or the value or something in that space, right? It, and so, um, you know, that is an interesting point because when you look around at other people in our space, you do see some diversity in the way businesses position themselves. So do you think you've made that pivot because you're in finance and as you described, people in finance have an understanding of what anthropologists do, you know, or are you seeing that more broadly in that even outside of finance, people seem to have a better sense? I think it's across the board, and I think it's largely because of the work done by organisations like the ethnographic practice and industry community and the hard work by people like Gillian Tett, who since the global financial crisis has been working very hard to bring anthropology into the picture and make it known. Um, I think so many people have done so much work that they have really transformed the way anthropology is seen in many places, especially in the United States, also here in Europe, uh, also here in Australia. I can't really talk about the rest of the world, but I certainly see the change in these regions. Okay. Um, so coming back to the to the aspect of finance and sort of being involved, you know, oftentimes in family decisions or sort of involving other family members, it's a pretty interesting point um, and certainly something I haven't thought about in that kind of clear, in those clear terms, but I as you say, and I think about sort of, you know, even my daily behavior, it makes perfect sense. And so, you know, as a consultant in this space, there is a, there's a ripe amount, you know, there's a great space for us to work in, especially doing in-context research and really seeing those interactions. So I'm curious to know in the past year, why you've been doing this work, how have you been getting at those sort of social dynamics of how you know, say my, you know, just using me as an example, my financial activity might implicate, say, somebody else in my family. What have you been doing to really make sense of that, especially, you know, as we're in a COVID context? Well, one of my favorite methods always to use is the portable kit study, which involves interviewing people, but also asking them to take everything they're carrying with them out of their pockets and out of their bags and everything and put it on the table, uh, including taking their cards out of their phone and taking out all their receipts and so on and so forth. 
And the reason why this is my favourite method of studying money is because you get to see like a microcosm of people's lives spread out in front of you just from what they're carrying on them. And when we do research using this method, what we do is we first ask people to separate the things they need to take with them every day out of the house and the things that they store in their wallet but probably don't need to be there. And then you start getting a sense of where their priorities lie. And when you look at the items people are carrying, you see quite a range of things from the individually identified objects to the family objects. Uh, For example, um, identity cards, very individualistic. But then you start to get to things like, um, you know, uh, receipts for medical um, uh, appointments or something like that which are often connected with family members. Oh, I'm carrying, you know, the um, the card I had to take to the hospital because my daughter was ill or something like that. Um, you start to see receipts, which are one of my favourite to look at, of what have you been buying? Like, why are you keeping this one? And often those are items like um, if someone's bought a television or some other big ticket item, they might have put it in their wallet and they haven't cleared it out yet and they tend to want to hang on to it for safety and it's usually something related to the family as well because it's for the household. So that's when you start to see that household spending uh, really coming out in the things people carry. And also using this method, we ask people to show us their mobile phones. You know, what apps do you have on your phone that you use to make any kind of purchases? You know, do you have a banking app? Do you have Tiki? Do you have a money transfer app? Uh, any kind of apps like that. And then once you start asking people about the apps, you get stories about how they use the apps and who they use them with. So, for example, well, this is my banking app and uh, my partner also has access. This is a joint account, uh, stuff like that. Um, or and we send each other money or gifts for whatever for birthdays and so on and so forth. So, so by looking at those objects people use, you can sort of really can start to build up a picture of their social relations. Yeah, makes sense. And so, um, you mentioned earlier, you know, the analysis that anthropology brings, and particularly in this space, is really powerful, and that's a lot of the value add. Now, obviously, there's a long history going back, like to the gift and you know, discussing exchange in our discipline. So I'd be curious to know, you know, oftentimes in business, when when speaking with others, you hear that, you know, I don't always get to bring theory into the work that I'm doing, or when I do, I don't necessarily get to make it very public, at least oftentimes not to stakeholders. Um, And so I'm wondering, to what degree does theory really factor into your work on a yeah, on a consistent basis, and how might in the financial space you choose to present that or not? Absolutely. Actually, it, I tend to be able to bring it out quite a bit. So first of all, I do a lot of writing, podcasts, and I appear a lot at events. So I'm asked a lot to talk at conferences or record a video for something, whatever. So whenever I'm asked to do some kind of event, I always have the opportunity to talk about what I want. So that's great. That gets kind of the word out there. Uh, and there's lots of events I go to as well where it's perfectly reasonable to have these kinds of conversations and bring all the interesting stuff up. And people tend to really like it, so that's great. Uh, in terms of the other work, I've been pretty fortunate, I guess. We've done a fair bit of work lately on financial services for women, uh, including writing a book chapter and two uh, reports about the market for financial services for women. Uh, we wrote those reports because we realised that there are actually quite a lot of financial services targeted at women and we were interested in why that's the case. Okay, 
what are these services? Why do women need them? Why would women want them? Like what makes them different? And so we collected as many examples as we could from around the world and started really looking into what made them women specific. And we wrote the reports and absolutely we were able to bring anthropology and theory into that to discuss it. So there was no barriers there. I think in some other circumstances it can be more difficult. So, for example, in some of the financial inclusion work I've done with clients, it can be a little bit more restricted. Um, And that's largely because I find it can be quite difficult to bring nuance to a financial inclusion conversation because it's so solutions-oriented. Most of the industry working on financial inclusion issues really just want to solve problems. They want to take products to people who are poor. They want to overcome regulatory and technical barriers to do so. They're thinking less about the design end and what the consumer does and how they'll actually use those products. And that complexity of what consumers actually do in practice is not always compatible with that kind of thinking about, okay, how do we just improve access? Um, So there can be limitations there. And I suppose sometimes I find that frustrating because for me, the very purpose of taking financial tools to low-income people is not necessarily to reduce their poverty, but to improve their lives generally. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that it is not clear that giving people who are very poor good financial tools actually helps lift them out of poverty. And sometimes when you tell people this, they are shocked and say, well, what are we doing all this for? And I say, well, what do you mean? There are so many benefits to having good financial tools that aren't necessarily about increasing your income. These kind of financial tools can reduce stress, lower transaction costs. Um, they can be used to in for reciprocity, for sending uh, money to loved ones. Um, they can be fun, you know, and that holds for people who are low income as much as high income. So what I kind of say is we need to shift our perspective and draw upon actually some of that amazing anthropological work on uh, economy that goes back a long way and the more recent work on mobile money, such as Sybil Kusimba's work on mobile money in Kenya, and show that complexity and why financial tools can actually be valuable to people in a myriad of ways and not just the ways dictated or imagined by uh, the industry higher up. Yeah, and so that value that goes beyond just the economic value, you know, obviously it's key. But communicating that, it sounds like, is still a bit of a struggle. And so, you know, that that communicating some of our value oftentimes rings true in, in many, you know, when talking with many stakeholders, especially those that maybe go higher up in an organizational hierarchy and have less time to maybe dig into the details and the nuance. And so wondering if there's anything in that space that you've done that has proven to be more effective at communicating the value that you deliver as a consultant? Honestly, I think that the most effective ways of communicating this message to people are those event contexts where you have people uh, gathered together because they want to be there and they want to have a discussion and they want to learn and they're open to new ideas. So there are actually a lot of people out there in finance who are quite sick of the old ideas and are looking for new ideas. And my personal opinion is it makes the most sense to talk to those people first because they're the ones who are going to be receptive. Yeah, good, good suggestion. And so I'd like to, you know, maybe as to pivot here and, and wrap up with a few things. First, I'd like to get just a little bit of a, you know, comment from you on why did you go from Canela Consulting to Anthropology? You know, what 
uh, aside from the interest that we've talked about this whole time, you know, was there anything else that made you sort of, you know, move from essentially one brand to the other? Yeah, absolutely. Actually quite straightforward. So while I was doing Canela, actually people knew me for the finance work. So people kept coming to me for the finance work. So at the end of the day, it seemed like, actually, I think I can do more, achieve more, get more traction if I have a company that is just focused on finance. Because to be honest, that's actually all I want to do. I don't want to do the non-finance stuff. So I thought, well, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to um, leave uh, Canela behind, thank it for what it did for us. And uh, I really want to focus. And also in that, so... As I said at the outset, you know, you have a number of things on your plate now. Of course, um, you know, the the uh, European Women's Payment Network obviously directly relates to fintech, but also teaching. And so, and that, that, that sort of mix of teaching, you know, sort of like a main consulting gig with some other things on the side that you've done oftentimes sort of in recent tangential yeah, to, to finance, um, the way you bring that mix together to kind of craft, you know, uh, uh, an entire sort of portfolio of projects you're involved in is something that is, I think, increasingly popular, right? And today it's, we see it all the time, say, in the creator economy, people who are creating podcasts and, you know, vlogging and, and this and that, and, and kind of combining all these different skills together to sort of make something. And, I'm wondering, since you've been doing this now for some time, and maybe in a slightly more structured way than like the creator concept that I just talked about, but nonetheless, do you have any suggestions of how to kind of balance all of that work and, you know, like just tips for people who are kind of coming up and trying to do a little consulting on the side and maybe find a, you know, a full-time position and who are maybe adjunct in class here or there? Absolutely. You really need to be quite self-disciplined. <laughs> I have some natural advantages. One of my natural advantages is that I wake up really, really early. <laughs> so by the time most people have hit their desks, I've already done several hours of work. And um, people sometimes get jealous and they say, oh, I'm not that disciplined. I, I go to bed at 2 a.m. I know I should change it, but I don't. I'm like, well, it's not about discipline. I, it's just naturally when I sleep and wake up. I can't change it. If I got a job that made me have to work from 8 p.m. to 2 a.m., I would die. I would not last a week. There's no way. So it's actually not necessarily something you can change, but it's certainly, in my case, an advantage. The other thing is that I'm extremely organised. So everything has a procedure. I have tasks lists. I have ways of starting my emails. I have um, the same patterns every day. And, in fact, I've heard other people who are like business coaches say, look, if you want to be successful at anything in life, it takes persistence, and that doesn't mean actually banging your head against the wall. It's nothing dramatic. It takes doing exactly the same things every day, whether they're boring or not. Just have your system and stick to it, and that's what's going to get you there. And the other important thing, which is critical, is to also be disciplined enough to know when to stop. So I have a very structured working life. I do not work in the evenings. Sometimes I might attend an event, but not if they're really late. I don't work on the weekends unless I'm absolutely forced to do so. Because one thing I realised quite some time ago now is my brain just works so much better if I've had rest. Plus, actually, 
the most important work I do is often not when I'm at my desk, but when I'm out walking in the forest or walking around the house or doing the grocery shopping or cooking something. That is when I get my thinking done. That is when I play what I call mental Tetris in which everything falls into place. And I think way too often people are overwhelmed by guilt and fear and other negative emotions. What will people think of me? They compare themselves to others. They think, oh, but, you know, Jane probably works 80 hours a week. I should be working 80 hours a week too. Especially young people and especially in today's culture, it's very hard to escape that. You have to have very strong boundaries and you have to set them and you have to say no to people. Good recommendations. And and staying on the thread of recommendations, if somebody wanted to get into the consulting space, not necessarily fintech, but it you know, could be that if that's how you want to answer it, but just anthropological consulting in general, you know, given your history and your success, what would you recommend to others starting at this point? Well, I would highly recommend that they don't do what I did, which is try to go into it with no experience and no knowledge. And it did work out for me uh, for, for various reasons, uh, but it did take a, a bit of time to uh, to get off the runway, so to speak. Uh, I think the best thing to do is to actually try to get a job first in a field that you think would lead you to that. So, for example, working for uh, um, an agency that in which anthropology is strong is a good way to find your feet figure out what it's like for different clients, figure out how clients differ from each other, which is really important to know, Um, figure out what different kinds of projects there are and how everything works generally, and then when you have the confidence and enough knowledge set out uh, on your own. And in some ways I think working for a consultancy where you have a broad range of clients is much better than just getting a job in, let's say, Google or something like that because it does give you that broad exposure. And the other thing is, of course, to have a lot of conversations. So you will get your most valuable knowledge from also speaking to just random people around the place. So you've really got to expose to other kinds of people who are doing the kind of work you want to do. You've got to go to the conferences. um, You've got to volunteer for stuff. You've got to be involved in networks. You have to do all the different things that will make you successful Uh, Because I think in this day and age, precisely, it is the kind of multifarious work that many of us carry out with our different hats Mm -hmm. that actually makes us capable of doing our jobs as consultants. So great advice. And I agree with you on the kind of consultative or agency model. It uh, not, you know, it oftentimes between client size, client industry, you know, you get to use a range of methods, you know, and sometimes you have to be quick. Sometimes you have the opportunity to maybe do you know, something a little bit more generative and long-term. So it really helps kind of build that portfolio of skills. Um, one last thing, though, that's interesting. So you, you, know, you consulted for a period of time before you got into your sort of passion place of, of fintech. And so oftentimes I do hear people who really want to be in one industry and they struggle to get in there. Um, do you have any experience that, you know, any, any just thoughts on that, that, um, you know, based on the fact that you, you know, you, you had the agency experience and then you got to focus, you know, any thoughts on those individuals who really want to hold tight to, to like say one specific industry um, versus, you know, again, getting that broad experience? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a balance between on the one hand, you need to gauge the industry and what is your capability and whether it's feasible to simply stick to that industry. 
um, preferably really with the help of other people. It's not necessarily something you can actually decide yourself. But on the other hand, if you have a passion, you just need to dive into it. I mean, when I made a decision to stick with fintech, uh, I was already in it, actually. Um, I've been in it for years. And the reason why is because it's the only thing I've written about pretty much for the past 10 years. And so uh, I became known for it. And so by the time I switched, I was already totally enveloped in that one industry. And it wasn't really a conscious decision I ever made, like, oh, I'm going to focus on the finance industry because it's strategic and it will benefit my career in X ways. I just was obsessed with it. Um, So there was actually no choice to be made. (laughs) Uh, last question. Um, so you said you know you've been writing about it, and you mentioned you know some of the reports that you wrote on on um, fintech for women. So any thoughts on you know what our role should be as practicing anthropologists in terms of contributing back writing into the academic space? You know, not just like case reports, you know, that are industry oriented, but you know, there you know it seems like there's an opportunity for all of us to contribute more than we are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're doing serious research uh, that is of an academic standard, why not publish it and make it out there, get it out there? There are plenty of journals uh, to be approached um, and publishing in journals has its benefits in terms of that you then are more likely to reach that academic community and influence the direction of research. Uh, On the other hand, I do think writing for the public can be a great way to reach industry. So it's a matter of gauging how much time you have, what you're trying to achieve, uh, and just striking a balance. Yeah, great. So in closing, anything, um, I mean, I'll link to Fintopology. Anything, though, you want to make everybody aware of that exists? I know you said you have the podcast. I can link to that as well. But any other, you know, upcoming events or speaking engagements, anything you know, you name it, anything that you want to call out? Absolutely. Well, um, at the end of this month, we're starting a club called Apply Finance. Uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with the European Association of Social Anthropology. They have an applied anthropology network and they're just launching this series of clubs called Apply Clubs, uh, which will focus on different topics. So we've started one called Apply Finance, one of the clubs, and uh, we'll be having a launch event later this month uh, in which I will be speaking. But we're also looking for further speakers. So if you're an anthropologist or someone related to a anthropology in a similar field who has a passion for finance and wants to talk about it uh, to the rest of us finance anthropologists sociologists and so on uh, please get in touch and let me know and where should everybody find you they can find me on my business website anthropology.com or they can find me on my linkedin page which is uh, pretty easy to find wonderful well Aaron, thanks very much appreciate your time pleasure talking with you thank you very much matt it was good fun Thank you for listening to the Anthropology in Business podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.